तार मध्ये श्लोक तुम्ही कोयचे कंते कोयलो I recited all the verses like the blowing wind. How could you completely learn by heart even one among those verses? Prabhu kahe dever bore tumi kobi varai che dever bore ke ho hoya chuti dar. The Lord replied, <clears throat> By the grace of the Lord, someone may become a great poet, and similarly, by His grace, someone else may become a great chuti dar who, who can memorize anything immediately. Actually, he said, uh, by, the, by the grace of the Lord, you have become the best of Kavis. So, in this connection, Shuti Dar is a very important word. Right, this is Prabhupada's purport. Shuti means hearing, and Dara means one who can capture. Formerly, before the beginning of Kali Yuga, almost everyone, especially intelligent men, Brahmins, were Shuti Dars. As soon as a student heard any of the Vedic wisdom from the Master, He would remember it forever. There was no need to refer to books, and therefore there were no written books in those days. The spiritual master delivered the Vedic hymns and their explanations to the student, who would then remember them forever without consulting books. To become a Shutidhar, one who can remember simply by hearing is a great achievement. Oh, to become a Shutidhar, one who can remember simply by hearing, is a great achievement for a student. In the Bhagavad Gita, the Lord says, Jajadivuti Matsatsang Simadurditamevava. Know that all opulent, beautiful, and glorious creations spring from but a spark of my splendor. As soon as we find anything extraordinary, we should understand that such an extraordinary manifestation is the special grace of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Therefore, Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu replied to the champion, Keshav Kashmiri, that just as he was greatly proud of being a, as he, Keshav Kashmiri, was greatly proud of being a favorite devotee of Mother Saraswati, so someone else, like Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself, being favored by the Supreme Personality of Godhead, could become a Sutidhara and thus memorize anything immediately. Namon Vishnu Padaya Krishna Pristaya Bhutale Srimate Bhakti Vedam Samaniti Namine Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pracharine Nirvishesha Shunyavari Paschatyadeshatarine Uh, of course, uh, the mistake in the Keshav Kajmeri Pandit's verse was the compound Bhavani Varatur. Bhavani Varatur, because Bhavani, it means the wife of Bhava, Lord Shiva. That's a way of making a wife's name, like, for example, Indra. Indra's wife is Indrani. So Bhavani means Lord Shiva's wife. So if you say the husband of Lord Shiva's wife, It sounds like there's some other husband, like she's a, uh, engaged in polyandry or something. Has more than one husband. Lord Shiva's wife's husband. So, that, <laughs> so that's actually what Lord Chaitanya pointed out. Uh, this is interesting. Of course, the Keshav Kashmiri Pandit was, has many descendants nowadays, scholars or intellectuals who who take pride in their learning, they, um, now there, there are two extremes. One extreme, of course, is to be proud of one's learning. Another extreme, which is also popular sometimes in religious circles, is to be proud of one's ignorance. <coughs> in other words, there are people that take pride in not being educated. And, uh, 
because everyone finds something to take pride in. Some people are proud of their humility. Everyone is proud, I mean, because we're conditioned souls. It's like if you're hungry, you find something to eat here or there. You just find something. So because we, if we have that craving for pride, we'll find something to be proud of. I mean, you can go to Skid Row in order to go to a very low-class place where a bunch of, let's say, drunks are just lying on park benches or something, but they have their social hierarchy. They have their pecking order. Probably used to point out things like this. You can go to the lowest social stratum you can find, and even there you'll find that they have a social hierarchy. There's actually, you know, someone's a leader, someone's a follower, someone gets the good bench in the park, someone gets the middle bench, <laughs> someone's under the bench. <laughs> Just like among animals, uh, of course, animals are very hierarchical. So, now, to give, to give an example, well, there's a, there's a um, there was a Christian position, philosophical position, called fideism, from the word fide, which means faith, like bona fide, which literally means good faith, to do something in good faith, bona fide. So, uh, because some great Christian thinkers, actually quite a few of them, noticed that many of the basic claims of Christianity were irrational. I mean, even very faithful Christians, devout Christians, who did not want to give up their relationship with Jesus, but could not help noticing many of the starkly irrational claims of Christianity, so they developed a philosophical position called fideism. I mean, we could talk later about what those irrational claims are. But um, fideism was a position held by people like, I think, Pascal, who was one of the great thinkers of the 17th century, a great... Um, philosopher and also mathematician, inventor, Kierkegaard in the 19th century. The idea that because human beings tend to be proud of their intelligence and proud of their education, therefore God, to humble them, has intentionally given the world an irrational revelation. Has intentionally given the world an irrational revelation. I mean, there are many irrational aspects. For example, the idea that, uh, I mean, imagine if, if, if in the middle of the night there was a knock on the door and there was like a SWAT team kicking your door down and they arrested you and were dragging you off to jail because it turned out that genealogists had discovered that thousands of years ago one of your ancestors had committed a crime and not been punished for it. So now thousands of years later you were being dragged. I mean. What have you read that in some country, that in some country they do things like that? They actually like do the genealogy, and if they discover any crime in your lineage, even thousands of years in the past, they arrest you and punish you. We would consider that to be wildly unjust and, uh, and crazy. I mean, that's something even Hugo Chavez wouldn't do. So, and yet, that claim was made for God, that God does crazy things like that. 
that's in a very it's a very eccentric notion of justice that's called original sin that we're all suffering and indeed have to be punished because of something one of our ancestors did thousands of years ago it's it's a very nutty idea actually john stuart mill the great english philosopher i think of the 19th century john stuart mill said that i cannot worship a god who is morally inferior to human beings or the notion that let's say on the weekend you give your kid like you're like here's a hundred things to do and if the child either refuses to do one of those tasks or doesn't do it properly then the only reasonable thing to do is to kill your child right i mean what else would a good parent do after all this is paul's argument in the letter to the romans i mean th this is one of if you ever saw that movie narnia i mean this is one of the basic arguments of christianity that that um, we all deserve to be killed. Even if you're a good person, pay your taxes, smile at your neighbors, and love your children, and mow your lawn, and I mean, if you do all these things, you still deserve to be killed, obviously, because your supreme, loving, infinitely compassionate father, the reason you're that infinitely compassionate being should murder you is because you imperfectly follow him. And so, what else would a loving father do? But, your loving father is so kind that instead of killing you, he'll kill himself. And so he sends his, his good son to the earth, and of course that good son is also fully God, as well as fully man, so God will... I mean, what would you think if your parents came to you one day when you were a child and said that you're not really perfectly obedient. You are not perfectly obedient. And therefore, as your loving parents, we have no choice but to kill you. <laughs> However, because we love you so much, we're going to kill ourselves instead. <laughs> to prove our love to you. For we so loved our children that we killed ourselves. It occurred to more than one person in, in history that this is grossly nutty. <laughs> or the idea that in many traditions around the world, actually in most great religious traditions, there are many examples of people that gave their life for God or to help other people, and yet you can only follow one of those people, and, and the rest of them are actually going to hell, even though they gave, even though they gave their life. It's, there, was, there are so many irrational elements it, it, it got, and I don't know why I'm going over all this, except that I feel that uh, we live in a, in a country in which this is very prominent, and I think devotees should be educated to understand how bad it is. I mean, there are some nice, there are some good elements, there are pious elements, and so on, but there's a lot of um, poisonous, poisonous theology. I'd like to mention one point, and then I'll, I'll get, back, I get back to the verse. I realize that the standard in this con is not to speak on the verse in the morning class, but actually a thousand years ago, a thousand years ago, the philosopher Anselm, St. Anselm, gave a very, what became a very famous argument to prove the existence of God. It's called the ontological proof for the existence of God. And he argued that God is that being then whom no greater being can be conceived. That's the argument. God is that being, then whom 
no greater being can be conceived. And so if you say God doesn't exist, I can conceive of a greater being, namely one that has all the attributes of God and does exist. I mean, as you probably are noticing, this is a sort of a, a philosophical, tricky argument. And yet, uh, a thousand years later, atheists are still kind of sweating over it. So, but that was his argument. God is that being in whom no great... But apart from... Now, he was just going for the existence of God. Anselm was simply trying to prove God exists. But in making this argument, uh, he opens up other philosophical possibilities. Actually, he opens the door big enough so we can drive a, a Vaishnav truck through it. Because, interestingly, about, oh, approximately 500, 550 years after Anselm, Rupa Goswami, who I don't think he read Anselm, but anyway, Rupa Goswami gave basically the same argument, which is found in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Because in that book, which Prabhupada translates as Nectar Devotion, Rupa Goswami argues that if you study all the different candidates for God, such as Shiva or even Narayan, some people worship Vishnu as the, as the supreme form of God. Now, outside of India, there really aren't many candidates that are more or less like faceless, almost like anonymous candidates, in the sense that you can't really know God. In the Jewish tradition, it was widely believed that God is so holy, you can't even say God's name, not to speak of like carving deities. You can't even say God's name. In Christianity, as we know, despite the sort of the non-scriptural belief that God is very similar to an elderly person and basically dresses like a Palestinian, <laughs> wearing robes, you know, the white hair and the beards and so on. But that's not really, I mean, the Bible doesn't really state that. So basically you have... Vedic candidates and you have anonymous candidates from other parts of the world. And Rupa Goswami concerned himself with the known candidates, not the anonymous ones. But Rupa Goswami's basic argument is that Krishna is the original form of God. Krishna is Swayam Bhagavan because he has the most and, and the most glorious qualities. So basically, in, in abstract philosophical terms, Rupa Goswami's argument is that because God is infinitely great, the highest conception of God is the truest. That's basically what he's saying philosophically. God is infinitely great, and therefore the greatest conception is the closest to God, is the truest. Therefore, Krishna is God. So now go back to Anselm who sort of paraphrases Rupa Goswami. He came first, but since we're, we have the best religion, he's paraphrasing Rupa Goswami. <laughs> so Anselm says that God is that being than whom no greater being can be conceived. And that's what Rupa Goswami says, that, that the highest conception is the truest. Therefore, I would say to Anselm, if anyone here can channel him, and if we can get him to speak to us, but... I would say to Anselm that you're right and therefore the ultimate conception of God is not the one you're stuck with. Not the one which has led to almost innumerable atrocities, acts of barbaric cruelty, and so on. And, and this, this history of barbarism, this history of evil perpetrated in the name of God 
uh, I would like to say historically, is directly related to the conception of God. In other words, there is a very, there is a connection. There is an essential connection between the philosophy and the behavior. After all, Krishna explains this in Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Jajjada Charati Sheshtas, whatever the best person does, Tattarevetarojana. The common people will do exactly the same, Tattarevetarojana. Sajat Pramanam Kurute, whatever, literally, whatever evidence the person establishes by their behavior. Krishna indicates in his verse in the Gita, which I think is 321, 3.21.gita, that that when, it, when the best person acts, it's actually pramana. It's actually evidence. The be, we, for example, we say among ourselves, well, I saw Prabhupada eat a jalebi or something and, and you know, order a jalebi from the restaurant in Hong Kong. So therefore, we can order jalebis from restaurants, hotel restaurants. So we take the behavior of the best person as evidence. So if you believe, and, and Krishna is talking about himself, Krishna is saying, as God, Whatever I do becomes evidence for everybody else or becomes a justification for everybody else. So when Krishna says, Jajaracharti Shrestas, he is speaking in the first instance of himself as God. So accepting that in other religious traditions, the activities of God are taken in the same way as the highest evidence. If you believe, if you believe that God will torture I mean, I guess that must include waterboarding. But if you believe that God will torture forever, forever, I mean, that is a very long time. That means after trillions, let's say, let's say after the first, what if after the first five seconds of torture, you've had a religious conversion? Because like you're being tortured, you're in the lake of fire, and you're thrashing around. And let's say after, literally after about two or three seconds, you've had a dramatic religious conversion and you now do want to follow God. It doesn't matter. For trillions of trillions of quadrillions of, of quintillions of sextillions of septillions of octillions of years, you're gonna continue to be tortured, tortured even though You've already come to your senses. I mean, there's something so profoundly evil about this conception. In my view, this conception is, all, I think it comes very close to what I would call absolute evil. It is, it is, it is like monstrous. And so if you believe that this is the behavior of God, and if you want to follow the best person and to put the cherry on the poison cake or pie or some other pastry, all this, get inspired by that lunch. <laughs> this, like, this hideously monstrous behavior, this torture is being given out. Why? Because of thought crimes. 
Not even because you did something physically wrong, like you, you know, beat up some elderly person or something. It, it, these are for mental crimes. You are being tortured in the most hideous, unspeakably painful ways forever with no chance of redemption for thought crimes. For thought crimes. And the people being and, and the person torturing is the loving parent. And the people being tortured are the children of that parent. Now, I defy anyone to come up with greater evil than this. This is probably, this is perhaps, arguably, the most evil conception of God ever imagined by a twisted human mind. And therefore, what, uh, I mean, I, to me, it, 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 you know, I would almost like categorize it as psychotic. And so I would say to Anselm that you have, that your conception of God is such that God is that being than whom no more evil being has ever been imagined. God is that being to you than whom no more evil being has ever been conceived. And taking the positive side of it, God is that being than whom no greater being can be conceived. Well, guess what? We've got a winner here, Krishna. Now, it's interesting in comparison, and actually in the last three minutes of the class, I'm going to speak on the verse so I can <laughs> tell everybody that I did speak on the verse. I don't know, somehow, I don't know how I got uncorked like this, but... <laughs> so anyway... Now compare this to Krishna, who does not have anger management issues. I mean, God, as conceived by some people, needs various 12-step programs. So Krishna, if you read the Bhagavad Gita, what Krishna teaches is that you can be happy in this world, and materially happy, it's not the ultimate happiness, but you can be materially happy, you can be materially wise, and you can be elevated in this world without Krishna. That's the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. Because Krishna clearly says, Urdhva means upward. Urdhvangachanti sattvasta, those standing in goodness go upward. Krishna says, Satat Sanjayate Sukham, from goodness comes happiness. Krishna says, Tasmat Satum Nirmalatvat Prakashakam, that goodness is enlightening because of its purity. So Krishna says all this about goodness, and then Krishna says, Yajante Sattvika Devan, those in goodness worship the demigods. So, this is not a jealous God. This is a God who actually does not have self-esteem issues. <laughs> Krishna, part of Krishna's, one of Krishna's six opulences is that he's completely detached. And therefore, he, as Krishna says in the Gita, he lays out his theory of justice. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, as people approach me, 
tans to taiva bajamiham, I reciprocate precisely in that way. So if you are morally good, pious, Krishna will reciprocate with you and reward you. If you don't, if you accept Krishna or not, is another issue. Krishna says, if you want me, then you have to worship me. If you do worship me, you'll come to me. If you want something else, you'll go to that. Krishna really doesn't have a personal problem with it. Krishna is asking us to come to him entirely for our own benefit. Entirely for our own benefit, and he will perfectly reciprocate with you based on what you want. In fact, Krishna is so liberal, not to say he's a Democrat, <laughs> but Krishna is so liberal that he says in the Bhagavad Gita chapter 7 that jo, jo, jang, jang, tanu, bhakta, literally whoever, whoever endeavors with faith to worship whatever form, tanu means a form, a sense of expanded form, uh, whatever form, under a sort of deity, tasya uh, tasya, in each case, achalang shadham, unmoving faith, literally achalang shadham, unmoving faith, I give it to you. Whatever, whoever uh, endeavors to worship with faith, whatever form of divine power, I will bestow upon you unmoving faith. In that. And then Krishna says, Sa, that person, Tayasha Daya Yukta, endowed with that particular faith, Tasyaradhanamihate, the person begins their worship. And Labate Chatatakaman, and they get their wishes. They actually get their wishes. So why do people have strong faith in so many different religions and so many different spiritual processes? Because Krishna says, I'm giving them unmoving faith and then they're achieving their wishes. I mean, what else do you need? If someone gives you unmoving faith in something and then you actually get what you wanted, you're going to become a true believer. So then Krishna says, they achieve their wishes, but Mayaiva vihitan hitan, but those wishes that the person achieved were actually granted by me alone. They were actually granted by me alone. So it's very interesting. This is not a jealous God. In fact, if Krishna did not grant you your wishes, in other words, let's say, what, what if the universe was created in such a way that you were inclined to worship a particular deity? However, you couldn't really believe that this was the person you should, or the object you should worship. Somehow or other, you couldn't really believe it. Or if you did believe it, you didn't get what you wanted. If that was the case, you could not really play out, you could not really fully pursue your material inclinations, and you could not discover the natural consequences of them. If Krishna preempted any non-Krishna conscious pursuit or inclination, people could never fully get these things out of their system. They could never deeply understand the consequences and the nature of what they were pursuing. Krishna brings us back to him, not through violent coercion. It's not that if you don't love me, I will 
rip you into little pieces. Oh, wait, what was that? There, there, there's some, they have, apparently in Northeast United States, among certain ethnic communities, they have a, a certain curse they utter, like I heard when, uh, anyway, <laughs> one devotee was from that region was driving a car and someone cut them off. And then it, for sort of spontaneously, this person said, crash, burn, and live. There's something about the uh, the Northeast which produces such. <laughs> yes, the land of poets. So, crash, burn, and live. So, <laughs> so if Krishna, by violent threats, by coercion, preempted our inclinations, how would we freely come to choose Krishna? Krishna wants us to freely, freely choose him based on an objective understanding. Based on an objective understanding. Krishna is amazing because we, of course, want people to love us. All of us want to be loved. And if we become attached to someone, we need that person to love us. Otherwise, we uh, crash, burn, and live. But Krishna wants us to love him for our benefit. And he wants us to love him because it's actually in our ultimate self-interest. And it's not in our ultimate interest because Krishna will reward Krishna consciousness and punish other states of consciousness. But it's in our ultimate interest simply because of the nature of Krishna. Because of the objective facts. Not on the ground, but I guess in the sky. So based on the objective facts of the matter, it is in our rational self-interest to love Krishna because of Krishna's own nature, not because of punishments and rewards which are attached to, uh, let's say, different types of behavior. So whatever Krishna enjoins or whatever Krishna forbids is because of the intrinsic objective nature of that behavior. So that even if there were no God, it would still be in your interest to behave a certain way and not to behave a certain way based on the objective, intrinsic nature of, of, of behaviors and different entities in this world. That's why Krishna says, if you're not Krishna conscious, your fate entirely depends on the objective moral quality of your behavior. It's not ideologically based. So, I mean, you get into this, this monstrous perversion, this poisonous twisting of religion that uh, what God really cares about is ideology. So that even if you commit subtle theological mistakes, you actually love God and you love the Son of God, but you commit subtle theological mistakes, you're still going to be tortured. Because God, it's all about ideology. You can see very easily how uh, the ideological wars of the 20th century, I mean the Bolsheviks, the, the Nazis and so on, basically they kept the same psychology of fanatical religion, they simply secularized this poison. So you had wars of ideology. Secular wars of ideology. Anyway, now, in the few remaining minutes, I will get back to this verse and show you how everything I just said was really to explain the verses we read. Give me a second to think about that.
Basically, here, the point of this story is that one should not be a puffed-up intellectual. That's the basic idea here. Keshav Kashmiri Pandit was not a bad person. He even worshipped Saraswati. He wasn't even really envious of Lord Chaitanya. He was just very proud of his intellectual powers. And it's one thing to be proud of it, let's say, in relation to kavya, poetics, that kind of, like, like you know, the, the liberal arts. It's even worse, one becomes proud of one's intelligence in theology. In other words, one may become so proud of one's intelligence that one, simply out of stupid pride, one is not inclined to accept Krishna's gift of perfect knowledge. It's like, don't tell me, I'll figure it out myself. You know, there's that saying, if everything else fails, read the directions. And so there are people, there are, you know, it's like people like to say that you buy some little piece of furniture that you assemble yourself at home. There's always these guys like, no, I'm really good at this. I don't have to read the directions. You know, and then like three days later, well, where are those directions? <laughs> so it's, it's actually just our foolish pride. It's like, don't tell me what the highest truth is. You know, I'll figure this out myself. And if there is some book, it's just someone else's opinion, just the opinion of some other human being. So uh, this intellectual pride can, uh, does often separate us from God. And uh, frankly, I think it's intellectual pride or some kind of pride that led to the creation of monstrous, twisted, poisonous theologies. I could say a lot more on the history of religions, but I'll restrain myself here. So, any questions on these points? Yes. Believer, now what went wrong? Was it the misrepresentation? But those incidents did take place, and Jesus also was a pure devotee. So I wanted to understand uh, what was the where this wrong picture coming, or what was the purpose behind? The purpose behind it? Uh, as I was explaining last night in a class I gave, uh, violent, violent tribalism and religion are a very combustible combination. There are parts of the world which to this day are violently tribal, us and them. There is, um, by, by tribalism, I'm contrasting tribalism with a more advanced notion of civil society or the rule of law. Tribalism means that if you're a member of my clan, you can do no wrong, at least in relation to outside people. And if you're a member of another tribe, you can do no right. So justice or, or being right means belonging to the right group and being wrong means belonging to the wrong group. I remember that I, I had an experience when I was in high school, one time after a high school football game, which our high school lost. They often lost football games, but we were pretty good in basketball. But. Anyway, uh, so a bunch of us, you know, like our little social group, actually it was one of the big social groups, we went to this 
restaurant at, you know, after the football game. And uh, it turns out that a lot of the people from the other high school also came to the same restaurant. And uh, they were kind of like, uh, they sort of took the, the, the sort of split level restaurant. So they took the high ground, all the tables, and they, you know, they, they wouldn't allow people from our high school into that area. And I mean, it, a, a fight didn't break out, but I was just, I, I remember just seeing like, like this anger when, when some of us started to go up to this other part of the restaurant and this anger like, get out of here, man, this is for uni high, you know, because it wasn't for our high school. <laughs> and I remember being a, of course, a sensitive, precocious young man at that time, soon to join a spiritual movement. I remember just feeling like, what is this? It just, it just seems so barbaric because this person didn't know me, knew nothing about me. And so that's what tribalism is. Now, in contrast, again, there, there's the rule of law, civil society, where that's why you have that, I guess, that Greek or Roman statue of the goddess of justice holding the scales and she's blindfolded. In other words, she doesn't want to see what clan you belong to, what tribe you belong to. You simply put the evidence on the scales and objectively you come to a decision without consideration of you know, what people's, people's last names are or what clan they come from. So there are parts of the world where really uh, they didn't really have things like civil society and the rule of law. It was very much tribal law. Tribal law also tends to be violent, like blood for blood and so on and so forth. Like if you don't obey your father, your father can kill you which is actually was a popular idea back in thousands of years ago in certain parts of the world. In Scandinavia also, the parents had the right even to kill their grown children. So, uh, so when you, when you get a, a tribal region, when you get a part of the world that is violently, fanatically tribal, and then you empower them, or they think they're empowered with the absolute truth, the highest religion, and they sort of impose upon their proselytizing this violently tribal notion that if you're not in our group, basically you're just roadkill. I mean, you, if, if you don't belong to our clan, then you're, you can just be killed. It's like a mafia mentality, tribal mentality. And then you start converting people. If anyone doesn't convert, basically God's going to torture them anyway, so we might as well you know, start light the fires down here on earth. It's like as above, so below. So I think it's this, um, if you look at the Roman Empire before, when it was pagan, before the, uh, the Christianization of it, it was actually quite eclectic. As I often say, it was, it was like a new age extravaganza. There were all kinds of religions and processes. Very much, it almost, I mean, the Roman Emperor could get pretty nasty, but Basically, if you stayed out of politics and didn't bother people and didn't create problems, it was pretty much, it was almost like, like, like a new age thing. And then coming into this was, in a sense, this, this powerful monotheism, which was a good thing, and this uh, violent fanaticism, which was a very bad thing. So uh, that's what we have. We have this sense of... Uh, this overwhelming sense that, that this is God's will combined with a violent, tribal, exclusivistic mentality and you get unlimited atrocities, brutality. You get, you get the history of Middle Eastern religions, even in Europe.
that's basically what's happened. Basically, as I've, I've been saying, it's a cliche that you know, most of the world's problems were caused by religion, religion's caused so many wars and so on. My question is, if all we knew about religion was the religions of Asia, would this be a cliche? So the, the Middle East has been sort of a, uh, a incredibly fertile breeding ground for, for violence and sectarianism. And although Europe was certainly violent before uh, it became Christian, this, this new twist of ideological warfare uh, was extremely destructive and poisonous. Yes. Srila uh, Prabhupada spent and energy uh, discussing the various world philosophies. And so it seems that in the one sense we want to be you know, true to the faith, but in another sense we have to know about other philosophies because we encounter them in our preaching. Oh, yes. In fact, uh, we can't, I mean, to be intelligently true to our faith, for example, within ISKCON, I know, I know within myself and until I studied, uh, we have a, in some ways, a very inaccurate conception of Buddhism. Just to give one example. I grew up thinking that the Buddhists were nihilists. They believe in nothingism, you know, that ultimately there's a void. I mean, that's a popular idea also. It's like that birthday card where the Dalai Lama opens his present and says, it's an empty box. Oh, just what I always wanted, nothing. <laughs> and, um, And the Buddhists did put forward as one of their main doctrines, shunyata, emptiness. However, if you look at historical Buddhism in India and throughout the world, uh, they definitely, almost all Buddhists, rejected nihilism. Nihil means nothing. And so nihilism, like annihilate, to nothingize, you know, to make nothing. So they rejected nihilism. They did not believe you know, the overwhelming majority of Buddhists, almost all Buddhists, did not believe that the highest truth is literally nothing. In fact, one of the most uh, popular forms of Buddhism, even in India and outside, was called Madhyamaka, the middle way, precisely because it was, it was in the middle between nihilism, which they rejected, and what they called eternalism, the fools. You know, the idea there's an eternal soul. I mean, why someone would want to reject eternal life for themselves is beyond me, but, but anyway, so they explicitly rejected nihilism, nothingism, voidism, they explicitly rejected voidism, and they chickened out from that, and they began to interpret, they began to interpret shunyata, emptiness, as, for example, this material world is empty of permanence, or that uh, ordinary life in this world is empty of real happiness. So they came with all kinds of ways of softening and interpreting shunyata, and I mean, this is, just to give you, just very quickly, to give an example of how we need to, I think, refine in some ways our presentation. People have basic religious needs. There are basic human religious needs. For example, if, so, if a loved one in your family passes away and you want to know, like, where did mommy go? The child wants, where did mommy go? And if the priest says that, uh, well, actually, you know, the void and there's no mommy and it's like, no one wants to hear that. 
No one wants to hear that. So like, basically in Buddhism, apart from the in highly intellectual theories about anatman, there's no self and blah, 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 on the ground, in the real world, the overwhelming majority of Buddhists just wanted religion. They wanted, they wanted guardian angels, they wanted saints, they wanted to go to heaven when they died, they wanted to believe their family went to heaven when they died, and that's actually what emerged as mainstream Buddhism. In fact, by the time Buddhism left India, I mean, Shankara philosophically defeated them, but uh, the Muslims physically killed them, so that was the end of Buddhism in India. They, the Muslims had a knack for uh, you know, sensitive behavior. So when they, when they came to India, they just basically killed all the Buddhist priests, and that was the ball game. But uh, by the time Buddhism was, was over in India, it, was, it had almost become indistinguishable from Hinduism. It had almost become indistinguishable from Hinduism. Because, and you, in other parts of the world, Pure Land Buddhism in Japan, for example, is based, has been compared to the Protestant Reformation. The idea that you can't save yourself, only, you know, only your Savior can save you, and, and you get the mercy of your Savior by, by chanting his name and by completely surrendering, not trying to save yourself. So, so the, the, this most popular form of Buddhism in Japan has been compared to Protestantism. The Buddhists, you know, they have altars, they have deities, they worship, they have demigods, they have reincarnation. There are stories about the past lives of Buddhists. So, so really it became indistinguishable from Hinduism and in, in India and other parts of the world. So the idea that Buddhists are voidists, uh, there's very, very little true voidism in the history of Buddhism. Now, so when we present our arguments against Buddhism, we, I, I think there's something to be said for having a, a better understanding of what Buddhism really is. Even Shankara, like Jagan Mitya, uh, Brahma Satyam Jagan Mitya, I mean, Shankara definitely teaches that there's no ultimate, eternal, final personality of Godhead. And so he is an impersonalist, but uh, as far as saying the world is just false, uh, it's not exactly what we often say it is. He didn't believe, again, he didn't believe the world doesn't exist. He believes that we don't see the world as it really is. So, um, Prabhupada gave us sort of these basic ideas, like Prabhupada said that uh, life comes from life, which is a brilliant insight, then he left it to the scientists to work out the details. So, th there is a real sense in which at least intellectual Buddhism in some ways was voidist, although not in the strong nihilistic sense that we often believe. And, there, and Shankar really is an impersonalist who really does deny the personality of Godhead. However, when you get down to some of the details, there are views on the status of this world. Does it really exist or not? And what is the nature of the truth and so on? Uh, there, we do need in some ways to uh, get more details in our presentation. That's one of the things I'm doing in my class, actually, in the U.S., is trying to bring some of those things out so that I can learn it better. And so, yes, Prabhupada, I mean, that's Yukta Vairagya. We do have to know these things if we are going to preach to intelligent people.
So perhaps we'll stop here. All glories to breakfast. And all glories to Srila Prabhupada.